Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 14. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created, in the day that the Lord made the, heaven, the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows out east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The word of the Lord. The second reading is from Genesis 2, 15 to 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. While he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The word of the Lord. Father in heaven, as we uh, come now to uh, wrestle with this reading, we ask that you would be our teacher, uh, that you would 
you'd breathe your life into us. Father, we all of us bring many questions to the text. Uh, some of those questions are simple curiosities, and some of those questions touch the very depths of who we are uh, and the very depths of who you are. Thank you that you're a good teacher. Will you teach us? And will you open us to a new level of trust? Show us your trustworthiness. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please have a seat. Um, and uh, turn back to that reading. Um, we're continuing our series in Genesis, and today we're kind of introducing uh, what for many of us is going to be a familiar reading, um, the story of the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve and so forth. I say introducing because uh, a little bit like what if you've been with us uh, like on Genesis 1, we're not even going to try to cover all of it in one sermon. Um, we're going to spend more than one week on this. And, and I'm mindful that for some of us, uh, we saw this in, in chapter 1 of Genesis, some of us are going to come with um, some pretty important questions about things like science and biology and human origins and um, and what I want to say is this, um, we're not going to uh, um, uh, focus on those questions, uh, certainly in this sermon, for a variety of reasons, partly because I don't think it's the primary aim of the text itself. But um, those are very, very important questions, and this text bears upon those questions. So what I want to do is I want to say this, those are questions we want to talk about here at Emmanuel. Uh, sometimes after the service, uh, we'll have little gatherings where we talk about some of those questions and identify some of those questions. If you would like to, um, after the service today, I can't do it for very long because I actually have to go to the airport, which is convenient. But it would be really helpful to me to hear some of those questions, uh, and, and, and we can do a little bit of responses, but probably we're, uh, we, we can think towards a time where we can address those questions more fully. So if you would like to, about 10 minutes after the service, right here, I'll put myself here. If anybody wants to, we can chat about it a little bit uh, and go from there. Sound good? All right, rock and roll. Okay, um, let me try to set up uh, uh, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden right uh, uh, for, for today. Have you ever been homesick? Do you remember being homesick? Um, fourth grade gym, uh, summer before fourth grade gym, I spent two weeks at camp uh, and, and, and it was terrible. Because the whole time I was homesick, um, I was just yearning for what I knew and for what, for the security of home, even though camp was great, but for some reason I was homesick. Um, children often experience homesickness, but there's also adult, homesickness. Um, and that's when uh, you move to New York because um, it's going to be amazing. Because it's going to be amazing what you're going to accomplish when you move here. And, uh, and then about uh, three to six months in, you find out the air conditioning is terrible here. And, and, and there's all these uh, smells on the subway that you're just like, man, really? Uh, and then, you know, you find somebody uh, playing music on the subway that's, that's better than you are, and you feel really, really, you're homesick, and you start to pine away. So there's adult homesick sickness. But then there's another kind of homesickness that, um, let me call it existential homesickness, and that's when you are pining away, you're homesick 
not for a place where you used to live, but for life as it should be lived. It's a deeper kind of homesickness. Uh, there's a philosopher called uh, Charles Taylor. He's really insightful. Um, observer of modern life, and, and he talks about uh, this idea of fullness, the fullness of life, that we have this desire, this sometimes imaginary projection, or sometimes it's, we can sense it in our desires. We have this vision or a hope of what fullness of life is going to be like, but very often it's a little bit like a mirage. You reach out and you grab it and it just slips away. And then sometimes it gets more sinister. He says this, and then there are times where we experience above all a distance, an absence, an exile. Think about that word exile. A seeming irremediable incapacity to ever reach the place of fullness. An absence of power, a confusion, or worse, the condition often described as melancholy. What is terrible, says Taylor, is that in these times we can lose a sense of where the place of fullness is, where our real home is. Even we lose a sense of what the fullness of life could possibly consist in. We feel we've forgotten what our home would look like, what this place of fullness would look like, or we can't even believe in it anymore. But the, mis the misery of absence, of loss, is still there. Indeed, in some ways, it's even more acute. And do you hear the tension there? I wonder if you've ever experienced it a little bit. So um, and somewhere intuitively, we have a sense that there's um, something, you know, life the way it should be lived, life in its fullness, and we're kind of homesick for it. But it's always slipping through our fingers, and we can never really grasp even what it means sometimes. And why am I saying all this? Here's why. Uh, Genesis chapter 2, the story of the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve, there's a way in which this story is designed to give us a vivid vision of what the fullness of life is really supposed to be like. It's a vision of the home we've always desired, but we've never visited. Now, remember that it's written to ancient Israel, and it's written to ancient Israel when they're coming out of enslavement in Egypt and, and at a time where they have no home. They've left their uh, home in uh, in enslavement in Egypt, but they haven't made it to the promised land yet. And, and in the midst of their homelessness, they don't really have a vision of what human fullness really can consist in because their experience has only been of enslavement. Therefore, their only framework for what human life can be like is you've got the slaves and you've got the masters, and therefore they view the world through the lens of power and coercion and oppression. You can read about this in the second book of the Bible in, in, in Exodus. And if, if you read that, one of the things you'll notice is that when Israel it comes out of their enslavement, they've got massive trust issues with God. You just don't trust him. Because they project upon God their experience of the past, their experience of Pharaoh, and they, they think that just like Pharaoh enslaved them, so this God appears to have liberated them, but really the God's... This new God is only going to take them out into the desert to play with them, to kill them. And the point is that Israel's past experiences meant that they had 
they couldn't imagine what a relationship with God could look like that was all about trust and intimacy and communion with God. And into that scene comes the book of Genesis and this story. And this story, in a way, was meant to reshape their vision of human fullness and give them a sense of their real home. It was a little bit like the God, uh, um, the God of Israel, the Lord, is, is saying to Israel, listen, Israel, I'm calling you to a type of human fullness that you can't even imagine based upon your previous experience. Therefore, I've got to tell you a story. It's, in a sense, the prequel of your story. It's the story that reaches into the deep past, far deeper in the past than your mem memory. And it's a story that is going to expand. It's as if God says to Israel, it's going to expand your vision of what human fullness is meant to be. It's going to tell you and describe to you the home for which you long, but you've never visited. Now, I would argue that uh, our modern vision of human fullness is very often just as impoverished as ancient Israel's. And therefore, we need this story to speak into that deep homesickness that we have and to tell us the story of our origins and the story of God's intention for human fullness. And what I want to show you today is there's two aspects to our true home or there's two aspects to human fullness. It is first and foremost about receiving the life of God, which then leads us to a new life of freedom. Receiving the life of God leading to a new life in freedom. Go to the story. So the scene opens up. It's a little bit like uh, a repeat in some ways of Genesis chapter 1 in the fact that then when the scene opens, uh, it is not conducive to life. And there's no plants, there's no animals, there's no humans, there's no life. And so God gets to work. It's the Lord. Actually, notice uh, the term. It's the Lord God. That's a different term than was used in Genesis chapter 1. And the all caps Lord is the particular name that God said to Israel when they came out of Egypt. I want you to use this name when you're talking to me. It's a name that signifies their intimacy. Anyway, so the Lord gets to work. Verse 7, the Lord God formed the man of of dust from the ground, verse 7, and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Now, there's something very surprising in that verse. Um, it says that uh, Adam, or the man, was made out of the dust of the earth. Now, that's actually not, perhaps not that surprising, because um, that was an ancient way of, of describing how the Lord uh, makes, in a way, how, how we're connected to, made of the same stuff as everything else. It also says that we become a living creature, the human becomes a living creature. And, and that's also a, a term that's shared with some of the other animals and so forth. But in the middle, it's a profoundly surprising bit that animates everything else with new meaning. It says that the Lord breathed into the human's nostrils. I want you to think about that image. There's an image of the Lord's face leaning towards his new sculpture, leaning towards the human's face. And it's almost an uncomfortable kind of nearness. 
The Lord leans towards the human face a little bit like a parent leans towards a child and gets closer than almost any other kind of relationship. And there the Lord breathes his own breath into the man's body. Now God, we know from the rest of the Bible, God doesn't have lungs, doesn't have a body. But it's an imagery that perfectly grasps a profound reality. It's an image, on the one hand, of the gift of life, and on the other hand, of the life of dependence. So it, it, the breath of the Lord, all through the Bible, is an image for the Holy Spirit. And when the Lord breathes into the human being here, the Lord is giving not just physical life, the Lord is giving spiritual life, meaning the Lord is, in, in a way, giving something of himself to the human. The Lord is breathing into the human his own love and his own affection and his own joy. There's a way in which the Lord is giving fullness of life to the human by imparting something of his own fullness of life to the human. So psychologist, I've mentioned him before, uh, Kurt Thompson, and he says um, that we were all born looking for a face that's looking for us. And that's true of each of us individually, but it's also true of all of us corporately. And human fullness, our real home, from the very beginning, is when we find ourselves looking for the Lord's face, looking for us. And that is the very origin of humanity. The breath of the Lord is the gift of God's own life. But it's also an image of our dependence upon the Lord, the life of a dependent. So um, everybody take a deep breath. Now, uh, you do that all the time. Did you know that? Uh, if, if you're really healthy, you probably don't even think about taking a breath. Uh, but if something goes wrong with your lungs, uh, um, you ever had asthma, um, all of a sudden you're very aware of it. And the reason is that biological life is fragile and is immediately dependent upon breathing. And human fullness is similar. Human life lived in our real home is similar. Spiritual life dies without breathing in God's presence, without breathing in the Holy Spirit, moment by moment and breath by breath. And that sets the stage, this life of dependence, that sets the stage for the delight of the Garden of Eden. Do you know what the word Eden means? There's actually a debate about this, but it probably means delight. Garden of delight. Now, why is, the, why is Eden filled with delight? Well, look at verses nine, or 8 and 9. It says this, the Lord planted a garden full of trees, and they're beautiful, to look at, isn't that, isn't that wonderful? They're beautiful to look at, and they're full of fruit. Now, one tree, however, is the tree of life, the tree of the fullness of life. And the plan in Eden is that the humans, uh, the ones we call Adam and Eve, um, 
are meant to feed upon the life of God by eating from the tree of life. That as they eat from the tree of life, um, on the one hand, their lives would be extended, but on the other hand, they would be animated by a true communion with God, feeding on the life of God moment by moment and breath by breath. It's an image of dependence. When we breathe, we depend upon oxygen. When we eat, we depend on food. But there's a little bit of a difference in the kind of dependence. When we eat food, it's much more intentional than breathing. When we eat food, we taste it. Yum. And we enjoy it, hopefully. And when it's really good, we're with other people around and we're enjoying the relationship of eating together gathered around the table. When human life is at its full, and when we are really at home, there is a delighted dependence as we feast upon God's life. There's both a constant breathing and an intentional eating. And these are two aspects of uh, the spiritual life. So a little bit of an aside, if you want to grow in your spiritual life, if you want to grow in life in the Holy Spirit, um, you need kind of two aspects going simultaneously. On the one hand, you need to be uh, practicing God's presence in an ongoing way, and it's like breathing. It's a moment-by-moment, breath-by-breath awareness of God and a dependence upon God. It's a little bit like an app in your phone that's running all the time in the background even while other things are going on and so as you go out into your week and into the most secular uh, contexts and into your work and in your home there's this sense that you go with the lord that the lord is before you and behind you and on either side of you and never away from you and there's an ongoing low-level awareness of that but there's another aspect of walking in the spirit and that is moments where you intentionally feed on the life of the life of god it's when you come to church for instance and we feed on christ in our hearts by faith and with thanksgiving it's when you sit down to pray it's when you uh, go to the back during the service and you ask somebody else to pray into your life in deep and particular and intentional ways it's when you set aside times in the morning to read the word and to soak in god's presence we need to breathe and we need to feed but part of the point is this. God does not, has not designed us to know him from a far distance. God wants to draw us so close to himself that we come to recognize the aroma of his breath. And I wonder if you know about that. To be so close to God that you can smell the aroma of his breath. That is his plan for you, and that is your home. But now we need to deal with the other tree. And the other tree is actually surprisingly a clue to the life of freedom. Look at verse 16. And the Lord commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. Now, my question is, why is that tree there? Anybody ever ask that question? Everybody asks that question. Is it a trap? Is it a trick? And of course, the people of Israel 
were really thinking it might be, right? The, the people of Israel, as God leads them out of Egypt, this is their question. Has the Lord just led us out into the wilderness to kill us? It's a trick. It's a trap. Is that what this is? No. Big surprise. It's about protecting the life of freedom. What? Think with me. Uh, we sometimes imagine that real freedom is life without limitations, right? I'll be really free when I don't have any constraints. Um, however, you and I both know that that's not true in the real world. Like, nobody ever became a musician, a free musician, free to play something without constraints, without the constraint of practice, right? There's no such thing as a musician who has not submitted to constraints. But it also plays out in a deeper level. When Israel was in Egypt, for instance, um, Pharaoh lived uh, with uh, authority without constraints. He had no limitations. But of course, he used his uh, no-limit freedom to enslave Israel. Uh, no-limit freedom leads to enslavement. And actually, it's deeper than that yet still, because Pharaoh himself was enslaved by his no-limit freedom. Because when there's no constraints and when there's no uh, boundaries in our lives, we end up being driven by our strongest desires, don't we? Yeah, give it time, and we will end up being slaves to whatever we want the most. And you can see that in the life of Pharaoh. There are times where Pharaoh actually really does clearly know what's right, but he is incapable of making the right choice because his no-restraint freedom has led him on a path of his own enslavement. Now keep that in mind and go back to the tree. Because in Genesis, to know good and evil uh, cannot, can mean to determine good and evil. It can mean to become the arbiter of good and evil. And that's a responsibility that is only appropriate to God for the simple fact that God made the world. And therefore, he is, he is qualified to distinguish good and evil in a way that we are not. Which means that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is a boundary. It's as if God's saying, I have made you for myself. I have made you to share in my life. And that's the only place you'll really find is your home. But tr sharing in my life includes trusting me to tell you about right and wrong, to show you right and wrong. But it's as if God says, but if you make yourself to be the arbiter of right and wrong, then you are crossing a boundary. And the boundary is you're deciding uh, to stop living in dependence upon, it's as if the Lord says, dependence upon me and my life, and you're striking out as your own God. But that leads to disaster. And the reason is that we're not God. And therefore, we are not the source of life. And when we try to be the source of our own life, cut off from the real source of life, what happens is we starve. And we suffocate. And we die. And we become like Pharaoh, enslaved to our strongest desires and eventually we abuse others to satisfy them. The tree is not a trap, it's a boundary. Traps obscure the danger and allure the victim.
Boundaries uncover the danger and point the other direction to freedom. And that's why God highlights the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's to point them away from the danger toward the fullness, towards home, and towards the life of freedom. And you can see that again in verse 16. We see immediately the boundary, but don't miss the blessing. Look at it again. The Lord God commanded. Everybody say command. What do you think is going to happen? Look at the command. You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. When I was a kid, there was a song that said, there is a place of commanded blessing. Have you ever thought about commanded blessing? The Lord says, look at the trees and don't not enjoy them. Go. And yes, there's a boundary, but look at all the blessings I've given. And all through this passage, there's blessing upon blessing upon blessing, and I don't have time because I'm actually running out of it. But let me show you just one. We're going to talk about uh, marriage in a few weeks. But notice at the back end of the reading, it's the Lord who says it's not good for the man to be alone. It's not the man that says that. The man doesn't know. The man doesn't know what the man needs. And it's the Lord who provides the family that Adam needs. And he doesn't know the family that he needs. It's the Lord that knows what's best. It's the Lord that's trustworthy to supply it all. The Lord is blessing and taking the initiative. And what that teaches us is that within God's boundaries, blessings explode upon our lives in profoundly unexpected ways. And Emmanuel, our lives would be so different if we believed it. Charles Taylor again says, do you remember? There are times where we experience above all an absence, a distance, an exile. We cannot reach the place we desire. Why? Why are we homesick? Why are we exiled? It's because we're a lot like ancient Israel. We believe that God's like Pharaoh. We believe he's a tyrant. And deep down, there's a whisper in all of our hearts that says, the Lord's not going to give you a home. The Lord's not going to lead you to fullness of life. You can't really trust the Lord for blessing. He's a tyrant. If you really want to find true fullness in life, then what you need to do is you need to look at yourself the Lord's not going to provide what you need. You need to go deep. The Eden that you seek is within you. And so we throw off the boundaries, and we usurp God's position. And it feels free for a bit, but then we find ourselves in exile. And the irony is that we think that God is like Pharaoh, but we end up being like Pharaoh. We take our desires, our strongest ones, and we turn them into compasses, and we ask them to be a map to lead us home. But it doesn't lead us home. It leads us further into the exile until we forget what our home might even look like. And what we need is to get back to Eden. And what we need is to breathe in the breath of God. And what we need is to feed again on the tree of life. Do you know what Jesus did right before he went up on the cross? 
He said, take and eat. This is my body. And then he went up on a tree and he experienced exile and he was cut off and he died. And then he rose again. You know what he did when he rose again? A, a few things. He found his disciples and he breathed on them and he said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is the tree of life. And Jesus Christ is the one who gives us the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ is our Eden. And Jesus Christ is our way home. And Jesus Christ, Emmanuel today, says, are you homesick? That's, I, I, that's a gift. And it says, come unto me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And Jesus says, come to me. I want to take you into a deeper experience of the power of the Holy Spirit. And I want to give you a deeper experience of what it is to rejoice and feast in the communion of God. And I want to take you, and I want to teach you, and I want to give you the fullness of life. Jesus Christ, Paul says, is the fullness of God. And Paul prays that we might in him find our own fullness fullness, and that's what God wants to give you. Jesus is your way home. Amen. Hello, everyone. My name is Jim Saladin. I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.